Hello, uh, and welcome to the first recording for Philosophy 201 Public Philosophy. My name is Jason Reed, and I'll be your uh, professor for this class. You can call me Jason, you can call me Professor Reed, um, or more often than not, since it's an online class, you may not call me anything. Um, so I want to say a couple things uh, about this class and about this podcast format. Um, I will be recording one of these for pretty much every week that we have class, with the exception, I think, of the week that we're watching the film. Um, although they'll become less important as we progress, where we're going to be turning our attention more to other podcasts and other sources of information. But at least for the very beginning, I'm going to be your sort of guide through our readings. Um, I'm very excited to teach this class. This is the first time I've taught this class. It's just designed this year. And the reason I wanted to teach it is because, uh, like a lot of people, I've noticed there's a fundamental transformation going on with how people uh, get information, how people debate and discuss things, uh, brought about primarily through social media, which has made it possible for everyone to engage in these forms of debate. And to some extent, one could argue, and maybe this is the first proposition I'll throw out there, that this uh, sort of democratization of debate and discussion has not necessarily been the sort of uh, progress that maybe earlier philosophers would have thought it to be, that it's led to all kinds of distortions, uh, quote-unquote fake news, it's led to or attributed to the rise of conspiracy theories, uh, to things called cancel culture, so on and so forth. There seems to be a kind of crisis about what it means to debate and discuss in public. So with that in mind, um, this course is designed to uh, engage that, that topic. And in doing so, it's divided into three sections um, and I want to talk a little bit about that and then get into this week's reading. So the first section is on the connection between public public discussion and democracy. Why people in the past have thought that being able to debate and discuss out in the public was instrumental and integral to the formation of uh, a democracy um, or a good, a well-run society. So in that first part, we're going to be looking at the history of this idea, going all the way back to ancient Greece and Athens up to uh, the 20th century. That's the first part of this class. Uh, the second part of the class will be dedicated to sort of the, the contemporary uh question of living in an information-based society and what happens to public debate in which we're looking at uh, the roles of misinformation, the role of social media uh, to influence debate and discussion, and so on. And the last part of this class, the last third, we're going to be looking at some quote-unquote case studies, some things that have been discussed, cancel culture, QAnon, um, the debate now over something called critical race theory. And we're going to be looking at these as things that are debated about the public use of reason. We're also going to be looking at these through the public, the readings and uh, uh, materials for the third portion of class are going to be entirely through um, uh, 
uh, online publications like the Boston Review or the Atlantic um, or the online portion of the New Yorker, that's worth pointing out. Um, and this is going to make it, things a little bit tricky. And this is something we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. But it's worth pointing out that so many uh, publications, you know, are divided around a paywall or not paywall. And there are many publications like the New Yorker or the Atlantic that we're reading parts of that will often give you access to a few articles a month. And then after that, you go beyond a paywall. So if you read a lot online, you might uh, want to sp um, spare yourself a couple of your free access to read some of the course readings. But um, and that's, you know, so I got way off topic there, but it's worth pointing out that um, that there is this division between um, free and paid for information. And to some extent, often the more well-researched um, uh, sourced articles are not available for free um, because it costs money to send reporters out in the field to do research and so forth. In fact, it's uh, far easier and cheaper for anyone, like I'm talking to you on a free app right now, Anchor, and anyone could make an Anchor podcast um, and say whatever the hell they think um, with no uh, cost to anyone. Um, so um, to some extent, a lot of uh, dubious stuff is free. A lot of more reliable stuff costs money than that has its own effects. But anyways, the point being, in the third section of this class, uh, we're going to be both talking about issues of public debate and looking at public use of reason in its modern form through podcasts, through online publications, and so on. So that brings me, this is completes uh, part one of, of today's recording. I want to do three things. One, talk about the class in general. Two, talk about the reading from Plato, the Apology. And three, talk about the reading from Kant, what is Enlightenment. Um, and with each of these, I want to throw out a question for this week's discussion board. The first one is going to be our sort of icebreaker question. Just say your name, um, uh, uh, and how you uh, prefer to be called. Um, uh, and then the icebreaker question is, what are some of your go-to sources for keeping yourself informed or engaged in the world? Do you, you know, say for example, uh, follow accounts on Twitter? Or uh, do you use Twitter for that purpose? Do you follow podcasts? Do you read a uh, print or online version of a newspaper? Um, which, where do you get your information, insight, etc. from? And this is just, just to find out, I just want to get a sense of the media um, landscape for this course, because I do think it's going to be relevant and important. So that's my first uh, question. Like I said, I'll come back in a couple minutes and talk about, well, I'm going to give you a brief pause and, and go into the, the next couple readings. Um, and then lastly, I do want to say something about the system of the structure of the class. In general, I want to say something about how this works in terms of assignment. So for each of the three sections, there is going to be an essay. Uh, first one on these uh, history of the idea of the public use of reason, which we'll get into starting today. Second one on the contemporary crisis of the public use of reason. And the third on examples and case studies. You can pick your own. Um, you can talk about 
a podcast you follow or whatever the case may be about what it looks, what the public use of debate and discussion looks like in the world today. Each of those comes with an essay. Each of those essays makes up 25% of the grade. The remaining 25% of the grade is what I just sort of talked about briefly, and that is your contribution to this week's discussion question. Every week, there'll be a discussion prompt, and every week, um, you should weigh in on whatever it is we're talking about, which will be based on the readings and also based on the podcast. So that's my brief introduction to this class. It's good to get to know you uh, virtually, um, and I look forward to this semester. All right, so I'm going to take a brief pause here um, and um, come back in a couple of seconds and talk about Plato. Okay, so our first reading for this week is uh, Plato's Apology. And I want to give a little bit of context about this. So uh, Plato was uh, a philosopher who lived from 428 to 348 BC. Uh, these numbers are given backwards because that's how we mark time. They didn't, they used some other kind of calendar. Um, and Plato was a student of Socrates who lived from 470 to 399 BC. Socrates Two things are famous about him. One is he did not write. Uh, he argued against the idea of using writing as a way of conveying philosophy because he thought written texts were a kind of dead letter that uh, lead themselves to misinterpretations. And the only way to do philosophy is to do it in the present and actual face-to-face -face conversations, which is what he did. He traveled around uh, the city of Athens and asked people to explain what they understood by things like virtue, things like justice, and so on. Um, and then Plato was his student. Uh, Plato did write, that's how we have this, wrote dialogues. So I mean, to some extent, I don't want to get too much into this right now. Already between Socrates and Plato, we're already seeing um, a fundamental uh, uh, transformation of the public nature of um, reason. And I, I know that sounds like a weird phrase, but what, when I say public nature of reason, I mean like how and in what way people are able to um, argue, debate, discuss, make sense of the world uh, in relation to each other, right? And a, a big transformation happens um, when we move from an oral culture in which people primarily debate, discuss face to face, and then once we move into a print culture where that's written down, and so on and so forth. And there always is someone who makes the same uh, the same opposition that Socrates does, right? This idea that that you know, with every new transformation of of media, of the way of recording and transcribing and preserving thoughts, ideas, and so on, there's always someone who's going to say, "Oh, this is ruining it!" Right? Once you write something down, you lose context, you lose 
intonation. You lose the sense that something might have initially. All that stuff falls away. And once you write things down, it's as much of a tool of misinterpretation as it is preservation. And the same argument we made later, once you start talking about once you record something, not writing it down, but recording it, it also makes possible you can snip it and cut and edit out of context. So there's always this, this worry that with ease of communication and ease of um, of recording and transcription, that something is going to be lost. Although, of course, um, without writing, we would uh, not be having this conversation about Plato's apology today. So um, more background about Plato's apology. So uh, uh, Socrates' apology, I guess, better way to put it. So Socrates... In 399, he was put on trial. He was accused of um, the crimes of impiety and corrupting the youth. Impiety meaning denying the gods that, that Athens believed in and believing in all the false gods and corrupting the youth. Um, at this time, he was 70 years old, right? So this raises this question of what did it take for the people of Athens to finally get fed up with Socrates. He's been doing this for most of his life, right? Going around, asking people, talking, and so on. Um, here there's a, some important context. Um, Athens had undergone two coups uh, in 410 and 404 BC, in which the democracy was overthrown, overthrown by tyrants, most famously the 30 tyrants in 404. And some of these people who were involved, some of the 30, were some of these young men who followed Socrates around, listened to him interrogate people, and got a taste for this kind of philosophy, which we'll get into. So there's a, a lot of people believe that what happened in 399, and there was an amnesty passed. No one could be charged for anything that happened during the time, the, the tyranny. Um, but after 399, people got kind of fed up with Socrates fed up with the way in which his teachings seemed to attract uh, people who wanted to become tyrants. So they decided to do something about it. Um, and they charged him with these two crimes, right? And, and at the time in, in ancient Athens, um, there was no such thing as like a public prosecutor, and there are no such things as lawyers, really. People themselves brought charges uh, uh, before the court, um, there was a jury of 500, which is huge, uh, given for a small, small place like Athens was. Um, I imagine you had a lot of jury duty if you were an ancient Athenian, um, if you were male and had property and so forth, pretty selective. Um, and so, uh, Socrates stands trial. Now, as many people have noticed and everyone who reads this notice, it's, not really an apology in the modern sense of the word. Socrates is pretty unapologetic. Um, but what interests us here is what Socrates has to say about the role of public debate and discussion and the limitations of public debate and discussion. Um, I want to start with the second one, with the limitations, because the truly striking thing to me every time I, I read this is 
the way it opens. Right? So we don't have a preservation of the sort of closing argument of the prosecution. Um, we only have this because Plato wrote this. He probably wrote this some years after it happened. Uh, there are other versions of this um, written by playwrights and others who are around. They all kind of agree on the major points that Socrates was pretty unapologetic and decided to go down swinging. Um, so it's it's relatively accurate. But one of the things we see, first of all, right, and this is, imagine this is Socrates beginning his defense, right? How have you felt, O men of Athens, hearing the speeches of my accusers? I cannot tell, but I know their persuasive words almost made me forgot who I was. Such was the effect of them. So the sense that he begins by saying, whoa, that's really sounded really convincing to me, even though I know it's not truth. Um, and this idea that Socrates opens with, the idea that what is persuasive and what is true are two very different things, is an idea he continues, right? He goes on to say, like, treat me like a foreigner. Um, who is speaking Greek as a second language, um, that I'm going to speak to you in a very foreign way. This is a strange thing to say. He's not at all a foreigner. He's lived in Athens his entire life, only going outside the city for his for, for military service. Um, he's not at all uh, dealing with a foreign tongue. But I think he is trying to say that there's something very different that he does when he tries to do philosophy than what happens uh, in these public spheres of uh, debate and persuasion. I mean, uh, the the term, well, as I mentioned, there were no lawyers in ancient Greek. If you were Greece, if you were charged, you had to defend yourself. You have you had charges to make, even charges not on behalf of you, but but charges on behalf of the city. You would have to go and make them. Um, so people did not have anyone to speak for them, but they did have people who taught them how to speak. These were sophists who taught the art of speaking well and persuasively. Um, I mean, if you've heard the word nowadays, sophistry is often equated with uh, uh, making the worse sound the better, right? Of being able to persuade someone uh, regardless of truth. So sophists were kind of held in the same uh, esteem that we hold lawyers, right, in their sense of their ability to bend uh, language and words in order to persuade people. So partly what Socrates is saying is, like, I'm not a sophist. I don't do this kind of fancy uh, uh, rhetorical discussion. I speak relatively plainly. But the other thing that Socrates uh, mentions is that um, his his accusers are those two people who brought charges before him, Miletus and Anitus. Um, uh, but he also mentions that he has other accusers, right? Like I said, he's 70 years old. He's older than most of the people who are there standing trial. And most of the people have heard about him since he since they were little kids. He's depicted in plays and so on, right? The plays is someone who's gazing up towards the sky, um, disconnected. I mean, all these sort of images of a kind of an absent-minded professor of, uh, 
unconcern with reality and so on. So as he points out, um, it's very difficult to dissuade someone of something that they have heard since they were a child. Now, the reason I bring all these things up is that you know, Socrates is often considered to be the beginning of Western philosophy, and philosophy is often considered to be this idea that arguments um, uh, uh, and reason have force and power, uh, but it's quite striking that this whole document begins pretty much with Socrates saying, I can't, uh, I can't do a, a better job speaking the truth than those who speak in convincing terms that may, may or may not be true. And I, I can't dissuade you of things that you've heard since you were a little kid, right? Little kids, as we all know, uh, are willing to believe almost anything and don't subject things to rational debate um, uh, or examination. And so the things that we are born into are the, the ideas that, that are in some sense subject to the least amount of scrutiny um, and uh, are most entrenched in us. So it's a real statement about the limitations of public, of philosophy, of the ability to persuade people by speaking the truth, right? Socrates says, my truth is not going to persuade you. Um, persuasive language persuades you. Uh, uh, prejudices that you've um, had and grown up with since you were a child, those are the things that persuade people. Truth is relatively powerless in the court of public opinion. So that's what he says about the limitations. Now I want to talk about what he has to say about the power and ability or the role of um, of discussion, right? So Socrates says, okay, now what did, what did I do to get in so much trouble? Well, he says, um, well, it really starts with a friend, right? It always starts with a friend, asking for a friend, as they say. He's a friend of mine once went down to the, the, to the, the Oracle uh, at Delphi um, and asked this sort of question, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the wisest of them all? And the Oracle said, Socrates. And Socrates says, well, I've taken quite a back from that. That doesn't sound like me at all. So he went around and he tried to find someone wiser than him. Right? He started with the politicians. It didn't turn out that they were wiser. He moved on to the poets. Um, and he asked them and he said, look, when it comes down to the poets, the writers, um, uh, other people are sometimes better interpreters of a poet's poems or plays or whatever than the poet themselves, right? And I, I want to mention that it's worth pointing out because this idea that you don't ask the author what they meant, that you turn to someone else to interpret what they meant, is an idea which is pretty much ingrained in our educational apparatuses to this day, right? If you take a class in English or take an English in high school, um, you spend some time sort of interpreting the works of an author. Um, maybe you've read literary criticism or so on, which, which, which purports to be able to say what an author's works are about. So this idea that, that as, 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 as Socrates says, that 
uh, writers seem to write under the persuasion of a kind of muse um, that doesn't necessarily uh, mean they, they they themselves even know how to interpret what, what they're doing. They seem almost like possessed when they write. This idea is still kind of entrenched in our way of looking at literature. And then he goes on to talk about the craftsmen. Um, and he says the craftsmen definitely know something, right? They know their craft. The problem is when they try to go beyond the boundaries of their knowledge um, and start talking about things that they don't necessarily uh, practice as a craft, right? And this, this point, I think, is important to talk about uh, at length a little bit because um, a democracy in the sense that even the Athenians had a pretty limited democracy in which, you know, only the property men uh, 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 did things like participate in juries and make decisions. Um, a democracy by definition presupposes the notion that people are able to make intelligent judgments on things outside of their craft. When you're when you have jury duty, right? It doesn't matter what you do for a living. You show up and you get to weigh in on the law and its limitations um, and its role and punishment. Same thing when you step into a voting booth, right? You might be a plumber, a baker, uh, a YouTube influencer, whatever, and you step into that voting booth and you get to weigh in on whatever the issues, ballot measures, candidates, and so forth, um, you know, things you might not know nothing, of, you might know nothing about, right? Like, I remember a while ago in Maine, we, we all got to vote on, you know, whether or not people should be able to bait bears with buckets of donuts, right? A lot of us don't know much about bears, may know a few things about donuts, but, you know, we all got to weigh in whether or not you know, we know anything about the matter at hand or not. Right? So a democracy demands the exact thing that Socrates is fairly critical here of the idea that you can know more than one craft or you can know your craft, your day job, and also weigh in on matters of crime, punishment, law, society, etc. Right? Because and if you've read the Republic, you know that 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 Plato takes his view that the best society is one where only ru rulers rulers only rule and bakers only bake and so on and so forth. Everyone sticks to their one job. Um, anyway, so uh, but in this in this process of interrogating people, Socrates says he plays a valued public role. He compares himself to a gadfly, right? He says, the city of Athens is like a strong, powerful, but lazy beast that would never get up and move if there wasn't someone standing up and asking questions like, well, how do you know you know what you know? Do you really know what virtue is, right? I mean, we see these questions play out in the, in the other parts of the apology, right? When, when Socrates asked the question, well, how do good, how do young men become 
good and upstanding citizens, right? Because the thing he's being accused of is 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 corrupting that, distorting that. Um, and how does it happen? Um, and so, you know, part of what Socrates is getting at is um, is there's a role to, for him to play here, right? He compares himself to an Olympic athlete. He says, Olympic athletes, they only make you happy for a little bit, right? Um, while you're watching the games and then you forget about them, you maybe see them on the Wheaties box, but you forget who they ever were. Um, uh, I am more concerned with your long-term happiness. Um, I'm more concerned about um, how you conduct yourself and whether or not you're living the right life. Um, and that's a valuable public service. So the question I'm going to ask here, and I'm going to ask a similar version for this week's discussion with Kant as well, and that is, um, how does Socrates or Plato, it doesn't really matter. I mean, Plato wrote this, but Socrates is doing most of the talking here, uh, see both the role of public debate and discussion and how does he see its limitations? Um, and this is, we're going to, in, in a minute, we're going to jump into Kant. We're going to look at a, a different version of the same, of the same problem. Okay, so the second reading for this week is a short text uh, by Immanuel Kant called What is Enlightenment? Or an answer to the question, What is Enlightenment? And as I think I mentioned, um, I have a PDF of that and another essay. The actual reading of the What is Enlightenment piece begins on page 33. Now, Kant, I don't want to say a lot about Kant because a lot could be said about Kant was a German philosopher who lived from 1724 to 1804 and more or less sort of re uh, gave a new foundation to modern philosophy in such works as the critique of pure reason and the critique of practical reason as well as ethics and so forth. Um, but the little piece we're reading for today is not from that. It's actually uh, uh, was written as a response to a question posed in a periodical, right? So it was written not for a, a specialized uh, audience of philosophers, but written um, about the public for the public. Um, and the question that Kant was asking is, what is enlightenment? And by enlightenment, um, what Kant means, or the question meant to some extent, not um, sort of an individual's but the question of the individual and racism society is one of the big questions, um, sort of process of transformation, the way we might use the word enlightenment, which has a kind of, now it kind of has a, a new agey kind of ring to it. Um, it was more of this idea that they were living in an age of uh, either an enlightened age, or as Kant puts it, an age of enlightened. And so Kant uh, says that, uh, of opening lines here, enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's understanding without guidance from another. This immaturity is self-imposed when the cause lies not in the lack of understanding, but the lack of resolve and courage to use it, right? And as he goes on to say, it's very easy to be immature. 
Um, you can have a book to serve as your understanding, a pastor to serve as one's conscience, and so on. Right? We, we can never have to rely on our own understanding um, because there are so many surrogates available. Um, you know, we can just rely on what someone else says or what they say, and so on. So, to some extent, it first sounds like Kant's idea of enlightenment is think for yourself, right? Don't tell me what the book says. Don't tell me what your pastor says. Don't tell me what, you know, Joe Rogan says. Uh, tell me what you think about the issue. Um, but then he goes on to say in the next paragraph, it is difficult for any individual to work him or herself out of this immaturity that has become their nature. So this, to some extent, has to become a public process. It's the public that can enlighten oneself. To do this on your own, um, uh, without debate and discussion with others, is a more or less impossible task. Um, so enlightenment is both... Uh, something different from just an individual process that involves the public, but it also is different, and I think this is also an important point, it is different from a revolution, right? As he says, the next page, a public can only attain enlightenment slowly. Perhaps a revolution could overthrow autocratic despotism and profiteering or power-grabbing oppression, but it can never truly reform a manner of thinking. Instead, new prejudices, just like the old ones they replace, will serve as a leash for the great unthinking mass, right? So if you just get rid of your king or despot, um, uh, you will, um, without changing how you think and so on, you'll be just waiting for the next king or despot to come along, right? I mean, the famous example of this that Kant was definitely aware of in European history was, you know, the uh, the British the English Civil War, the overthrowing of Charles uh, 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 by Cromwell, um, the root removal of a king, and they turned around and gave Cromwell the crown, right? The sort of meet the new boss, same as the old boss, that if you just have a revolution, and kill your dictator without killing the dictator in your head or your inability to think for yourself, you will end up with a new dictator. So uh, even though, as Kant says, I mean, this is a very kind of anti-revolutionary attack, right? Revolutions don't work. Violent overthrow without a change of the patterns of thinking uh, are only going to reproduce themselves, right? It's going to take Time. Enlightenment is a slow process of reform, not a quick process of revolution. Uh, and what does this process of reform look like? Well, Kant makes a distinction between what he calls the public and private use of reason. And now public and private the way he uses them might go against the way we use these words. He says, uh, by the public use of one's reason, 
I understand the use that re- anyone as a scholar makes of use reason before the entire literate world. I call the private use of reason that which a person may make in a civic post or office that has been entrusted to him. Right. So what does that mean in 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 practically? How does that play out? Well, if you are an officer um, and you're given to enforce a rule that you disagree with right, in your private post, in your role, in your job, you have to go along with that rule, right? Even if you disagree with it. Um, if you're an officer of the state, if you're a pastor in a church, um, it is in your private function when you're doing your job. That's pretty much what he means by private function. You do not have the ability to uh, uh, challenge that. What you can do is in your free time, when you're off duty, you can write, as Khan is doing here, an editorial in the newspaper um, discussing why you think the rule is uh, uh, unjust, right? So if you're like on the New York New York City Police Department and uh, they're imposing a stop and frisk where you go into suspicious, supposedly suspicious neighborhoods and randomly stop people and check them. Uh, you may object this this is a selective and may possibly even racist policy um, um, that doesn't really do anything um, uh, uh, for the public good. Um, you may think all that, and you're free to write that in a letter to the New York Post or on your Twitter account or whatever the case may be, but when you are doing your job, you are not able to um, uh, deviate, right? So the, the, uh, the formulation that Kant gives, and he's kind of proposing this is, is to Frederick II, right? Because when you write to the public, the rulers are also your readers too, right? He's saying, look, I'll cut you a deal here. And the deal is we're going to live in an enlightened city. We're going to argue but obey, right? So um, we're going to do whatever it is you tell us, you meaning Frederick II, you meaning the, the king of Prussia, um, and all the various other authorities. We're going to do what we're supposed to do. Um, but we are going to make these uh, points about why we think it's wrong, and we're going to let people know we disagree um, and with the hope, right, because part of the reason you argue but obey is at some point you think that your argument is going to, going to connect, resonate, and the rulers are going to say, yeah, you, you guys are making a good point. Let's change the rule, and you no longer have to obey a rule you disagree with, right? So this is another way in which it's obviously not a revolution, right? You're not, um, you're not uh, contesting uh, through civil disobedience, the rule, you're contesting the rule in theory while continuing to, to obey it in practice. Um, now, the question here becomes once again, the same question I want to ask, uh, asked about Plato or Socrates. Um, and that is, What's well, in some sense in a reverse form, um, and that is, 
about the powers and limitations of the public use of reason. I mean, one question to throw out with Kant is, um, is this compromise even tenable? Is it possible both for the people who are subjects to um, obey laws that they think are unjust um, uh, while debating them, right? It, it sort of demands that one be of two minds, right? You have your public mind where you are um, debating and discussing the laws and rules, and then you have your private conduct where you're obeying those same rules. Is it possible to be of two minds for the citizenry? And is it possible for uh, uh, a society to function in such a way? Um, in the sense that um, is can a society be of two minds um, where everyone is obeying laws that they um, uh, think are unjust, right? As, as Kant says at the end here, only a ruler who's himself enlightened and has no dread of shadows, yet likewise has a well-disciplined numerous army to guarantee public peace, can say that no republic can say what no republic may dare, namely, argue as much as you want and about what you want, but obey. Here as elsewhere, when things are considered in broad perspective, a strange, unexpected pattern in human affairs reveals itself, one in which almost everything is paradoxical. A greater degree of civil freedom seems advantageous to a people's spiritual freedom, yet the former established impassable boundaries for the latter. Conversely, a lesser degree of civil freedom provides enough room for all to truly expand their abilities. Thus, once nature has removed the hard shell from his kernel for which he has most fondly cared, namely the inclination to invocation for free thinking, the kernel gradually reacts on a people's mentality and it finally influences the principles of government, which finds that it can profit by treating men who are now more than machines in accord with their dignity, right? The, the model of social change that, that Kant is putting out here is one in which, you know, supposedly all these arguments that people make in their editorial columns and so on are supposed to trickle up and eventually the rulers are supposed to say, hey, that makes sense and change the rules accordingly. Um, one can question whether or not things ever really happen that way, right? Or one can even question, going back to our example of Socrates, right? To some extent, Socrates did argue but obey. Um, there's no nothing to suggest... Um, I mean, now he's accused of impiety, and that means like attending uh, uh, various religious festivals and, and sacrifices and so on. There's nothing to suggest that he really deviated greatly from what he was supposed to do. He did argue but obey, and the state found it intolerable, right, and and sentenced him to death. Um, so there's, I mean, we can we can ask this question from both seemingly opposed sides of the of of the spectrum, right? On the one hand, we can we can point out with a case like someone like Socrates, it seems like uh, states are quite uh, suspicious of the ability to argue but obey, and there are constant, you know, uh, invocations where 
um, uh, freedom to speech and freedom freedom to argue comes under scrutiny um, by by states. And then the flip side, we can also ask. Um, we can also ask the question: Is can you really expect people, as I said a couple minutes ago, to be of two minds, to argue but obey? Um, in the sense that wouldn't it create a kind of schism where um, people would just be unable to to constantly obey these rules that they think are unjust, um, or you know uh, maybe to some extent how people live and how people think are connected, and um, uh, and you can't really have freedom of thought without freedom of action, as we'll get a little bit into next week with Mill. But um, so the question um, for Kant is once again, this question of the abilities and limitations of the public use of reason. Um, and I guess to put it more pointedly, can one argue but obey? So those are the questions. I'll, I'll type these up in the discussion thing as well. Um, and I look forward to, to, to seeing your responses. Thanks.